From the Chicago Bulls, making his second All-Star appearance, number 10, Bob Love. Left away now is Bob Love, has the ball. Back door's open, he streaks down the baseline of the court, puts his head down, closes his eyes, Love puts it up. He's unbelievable. Going inside, hits the side of the backboard, lead pass to Love, strips that court like a water bug, very quick. Here's Bob Love for the Bulls. We got a three-point ball game, Bill. The basket goes, and Bob Love will go to the free throw line. Bob Love at the line. Big Chicago Bull, averaging 27 plus per game. Three for six from the field, four rebounds in the ball game. Leads the West, both points and in rebounds. Spinning off now with 19 seconds on the shot clock. Take a load of Bob Love. Bob Love fades away and drops it. Playing a tight defensive game now. Backs off to front. They're letting Love go one on one. Bob Love outfights everybody. Just can't do anything with that. Not that shot. All right, Bob. Oh, I am blessed, boy. This is a blessing. I haven't seen you in (laughs) ages. I know. See, the thing is, you look the same and I look older. So that's that's what happens here. This is a great ending, man, to a great story. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. In this episode, you're going to get a taste of one of the more delicious portions of the business as we talk with our vice president of the restaurant division, Vince Rossetti. You know, if I ask somebody, hey, tell me about fashion, they might stumble on it for a moment. If I just say the word meatloaf instantly, (laughs) they have an opinion, what it looks like, smells like, tastes like, whether they like it or whether they don't. Everyone has an opinion on food and they They can articulate it. But before that, I'm super excited to share my conversation with former NBA All-Star and legend of the Chicago Bulls, Bob Butterbean Love. Love dreamed of playing professional basketball since he was a little kid. Listening to games over the radio, he would practice his jump shot, tossing a rolled up ball of his grandfather's smelly old socks into a wire coat hanger he stole from his grandmother's closet. Humble beginnings for a man who would later become one of the greatest players of all time. Honing his skills through high school, it was apparent that Bob was destined for more than his small Louisiana hometown could offer. And despite struggling with a debilitating speech impediment, he became the first person in his entire family to go to college. After graduating, Bob spent the first year of his professional career playing in a minor league, earning the Rookie of the Year award and making him very difficult for NBA recruiters to overlook. Bob's dream of playing in the NBA was finally realized, starting in 1966, playing for Cincinnati, then in Milwaukee, until he eventually found a long-term home with the Chicago Bulls. During his nine-year stay with the Bulls, Bob led the team in scoring for seven straight seasons. He had three all-star appearances and set multiple records, some that still stand to this day. 
He still holds third place in points scored for the Bulls, just under Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. And his is one of only a handful of retired numbers hanging in the United Center today. As a kid, I remember hearing about Bob's iconic career with the Bulls, and interestingly enough, he wound up playing a portion of his last season in the NBA in 1977 with the Seattle Supersonics. But his life took a dramatic turn after his basketball career ended, because keep in mind, in those days, basketball players were not making multi-million dollars a year. So it was essential that Bob found a career after basketball. Bob says he found himself in an unfamiliar city, struggling to find work. The speech impediment that plagued him his entire life didn't affect his ability to score points, but it did make it near impossible for him to find a job off the court. The next chapter of Bob's life would actually bring him to Nordstrom of all places. We'll get into that during our conversation and learn about what he's been up to since then. But I'm just super grateful for the opportunity to speak to Bob about his life, and I know you're really going to enjoy listening to this story. So let's get into it. Hey, look, it's really a great pleasure for me today on the Nordy Pod to have Bob Love as our guest. And many of you may not know Bob, but what I would encourage you to do is just go to YouTube and type in Bob Love and watch this guy play basketball. I remember you, Bob, <laughs> very clearly as a guy on the Chicago Bulls who was totally given my hometown team, the Seattle Supersonics, the business. You were a hell of a player in your day. So, Bob, welcome to the show. Pete. Thank you. So, you know, Bob, what what I want to do is give you a chance to tell your story. It's it's really kind of an amazing one. You know, just the fact that you were this immensely successful basketball player and, you know, had a lot of notoriety uh, in that. And then, you know, your life after basketball and how it came to be that we met each other because you uh, you were with Nordstrom for some time. So, right. But to start out, why don't we just talk a little bit about your, your basketball career? And so can you talk a little bit more about your time with the Chicago Bulls? Well, I played for the, uh, the Chicago Bulls for, for nine years. I, I, I led the Bulls and scored for seven straight years. And I... Uh, out of all those years, I played in the in the era of the no three point shot. Yeah, so some people listening in might not know this, but before the 1979-80 season, there was literally no three point shot. The line just didn't exist. So you could have potentially even scored a lot more points than some of the highest scoring players today. Yeah, I, I just wish I was playing now. If I was playing now, I, I would I would be in that same category. But I still have records that. No one's broken. Number one record, I am the only player in the history of the NBA to average 44.5 points in four straight games. And even with the three-point shot, none of those guys have uh, broken my records. Also, I, I am the only person in the playoff era who has shot 17 straight free throws. All, all the money that these guys are making, <laughs> they, they can't shoot free throws, man. <laughs> I've I, noticed that. <laughs> I, I, I'm amazed. I'm amazed. I'm amazed. These guys are hitting the back of the rim, the the, uh, the side <laughs> of the rim. They're missing the whole rim. Whole rim. And me and my wife, we sit there and we just laugh about it. <laughs> so, so, Bob, you know, you were on a really good team. One thing that kind of strikes me is that you scored a lot of points and put up big numbers. 
but it wasn't because there was no one else around you. You were on a really good team. I mean, you had Norm Van Leer and Jerry Sloan and Chet Walker and Nate Thurman. I mean, these were all like legendary all-star type guys. And even amongst that kind of super successful group, you were the, the leading scorer and, and leading rebounder, I think, in a lot of cases. Yeah, I sure was. Sloan, Van Leer, Chet Walker, all, all of those guys were were like defensive players. But me, I could play both ends, offense and defense. But out of all the, all, all the years I played here, Pete, I, I never earned $100,000 a year. Can you believe that? <laughs> I, I, they told me I didn't need $100,000 back in those days. So, so, Bob, to put that in contrast for people that maybe don't follow professional sports, you were making less than $100,000 a year. You were an all-star player. You were the best player on your team. And so today... If someone is that guy in the Chicago Bulls today, they're making what? Oh, they're making too much. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the best player on the Bulls right now this season? Uh, the uh, the best player on the Bulls is uh, Zach. Zach Levine. Zach Levine. Well, he's a guy from Seattle. So I'm going to pull this up on Google. We're going to check this out. So Zach Levine. Let's see how much money that guy makes. Zach Levine salary. He makes $37 million a year. And that, wow! if this was... I didn't know that. Yeah. So, I mean, if this was 1969 or 70 or 71, where you'd be making $37 million a year, Bob. How about that? Ooh. Oh, that's mind-boggling to me. Mind-boggling, boy. Not even imaginable. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. So, tell me a little bit about... Go back further than that. So I'm not sure where you grew up and stuff, but I know you played. It was at Southern, right, in college? Is that where you played? Yeah, I played at Southern University down in Bedford, Louisiana. And my, my last year in school, I averaged 31 points a game, 20 rebounds a game. So, so Bob, where did you grow up? I, I, I grew up in a small town in Louisiana called Bastrop, Louisiana. And, and I, I grew up in the cotton field. I picked cotton, and I was I was I was I was a happy person. All of my life, I worked hard, and I never complained about anything. So, Bob, what was that expectation like when you were growing up? Is is it that you were going to be working in the cotton fields, or that you were going to go to school and play basketball? What what was the expectation like? Well, uh, back in those days, everybody in my family, we just wanted a job. Uh, we didn't. Think about going to going to college. I was the only person that thought about going to college, and and I went to college, and I had in my mind that I wasn't going to go back home, and I work in the cotton fields. I, I wanted to get an education. And so, what was the plan then when you were in college? I mean, you were a great basketball player, but were you thinking about being in the NBA? Or were you thinking about getting a degree and doing something specific with your education? Well, yeah, I wanted to go to that next level, but I knew that I, once I got up there, you see, it was it was it was no player for small colleges in the NBA. But I didn't care. I was going to be the first, and I wanted to be the top player. So. All of my life, I practiced. Growing up, we didn't have TV. Uh, I would I would listen to to the uh, the radio all the time. Boy, my favorite guy on the on 
on our radio. My favorite team was the St. Louis Hawks, and, and my favorite player was Bob Pettit. They, they used to call him Big Blue Boy. He had that line drive jump shot, and I, I used to live and dream about Big Blue, Bob <laughs> Pettit. My first basketball goal was the coat hanger that I stole out of my grandmother's closet. And my first basketball was a pair of my old grandfather's smelly, stinky socks. <laughs> and I filled it up, man. I filled it up with cotton rags. And I would always pretend that I was Bob Pettit. Boy, and I would go around shooting that line drive jumper, ducking. And I, I wanted to make the NBA. So, Bob, did you end up graduating from Southern? And if so, what was your degree? Yeah, I ended up graduating from Southern and a degree in foods and nutrition because, because you see, I stayed hungry a lot, and my favorite food was butter beans. <laughs> and watched my teammates, they found out about the butter beans. Uh, that's been my nickname ever since my last year in high school, Butterbean Love. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because when I was pulling up on YouTube and looking on your Wikipedia site, it, it, that was what it said, Bob Butterbean Love, and I remember you. That was your nickname when you were a player. <laughs> Absolutely, man. I, I love that name. So so you you played in like the, the minor leagues for a couple years, was that right? Uh yeah, I played in the Eastern League. Okay. Uh nineteen sixty four when I got out of school. I, I, there were no uh, there were no players from small colleges in the NBA. And, and 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 they sent me to the Eastern League that year. They sent me to Trent, New Jersey. And I played against all the top players from all around the country. And I made Rook of the Year and even today, my best friend in the NBA is Oscar Robertson. Oscar said, Butter, I told him you could play. Man, they should have kept you that first year. So I remember, yeah, obviously being really successful at Chicago when I was a kid growing up. But then at the end of your career, you ended up playing your last season in Seattle. Uh, yes, I did. Yes, I did. I, 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 got, uh, I got cut from the Bulls in 1970, 1975, 76. During that time, I had gotten hit side the head so much. Uh, everybody would try to, uh, to block my shot. I had that shot. I was real high, high release, and it was always up, always behind my head. I would always say, if, if, if they jump, I would hold the ball. If they didn't jump, I would shoot the ball. Yeah, you had a high release. I was watching some video of you. You definitely had a high release. And sure you're, a, you're a tall guy to start out with, and you're long. So, yeah, it looked like people had a hard time blocking your shot. Uh, yeah, but my, my last year, Pete, are, are those guys, guys, I would always try to block my shot, and they couldn't. And I had gotten hits, hits out of the head so much. And it finally took its toll on me. So uh, that... Then I want to fast forward to, um, I'll just give you my experience. So I remember you're on the team, you know, you were a really successful basketball player, well-known. And then I remember, this is maybe a couple years later, I think I was having lunch or something with my dad, you know, Mr. Bruce, who you remember, and John Nordstrom and Jim. And there you were working in the cafe at downtown Nordstrom. So how did it come to be when your professional career was over and you're here in Seattle that you started working at Nordstrom? Well, my last year in the league, Pete, I was in a strange part, part of the country. I was, I was up in Seattle, and, and uh, nobody knew me. I, I went to 
every company around there. I went to Boeing. I, I went to a lot of different sto- stores and companies, and and I know what would hire me because of my speech problem. But I, I, I went to I went to Nordstrom, and and at Nordstrom, all all you guys knew me, John, Blake, Bruce, and you, of course. And you guys gave gave me an opportunity because you found out that I had a degree in foods and nutrition, and and, and you actually said, Bob, uh, the only job that we got is busting tables and washing dishes. I said, I said, John, Pete, Bruce, I'll take it. I'll take it. I always grew up as a hard worker, and 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 I started off washing dishes and busting tables. And I was being nice to everyone that came into the uh, the restaurant, and everybody knew me. A lot of people would laugh would would uh, would laugh at me and say, "Man, uh, man, you used to be a great player, man. But look at you now, washing dishes and busting tables." I say, "Yeah, but I got a job. I got a job, and I'm gonna, and I and I'm gonna do the best job that I can do." I, I, I said, "John Nordstrom and Bruce, other uh, uh, they, uh, they gave me an opportunity." And I wasn't going to blow that opportunity. Yeah, I, I remember you that way. I mean, I can't take any credit for hiring you. That was, I mean, I was, I was a young guy there, but I remember my dad and, and John, Jim, they, they were talking about, you know, giving you that opportunity. And look, first of all, I'm just super impressed with, you know, the humility in which you approached that and took an opportunity. And then talk about what happened then. So you obviously you had that stutter that was really an impediment on you being able to get ahead and, and have a career outside of basketball. So what happened when you were working at Nordstrom that gave you a chance to, you know, work on your, your, your speech and your stutter? Well, John and Bruce said, Bob, we don't care, care, man, about your speech problem. Uh, we, we're going we're gonna to send you to speech therapy. And, and uh, you guys are the only are, are the only people who really cared enough about me to uh, to do that, man. And I went to uh, I went to therapy. It took me a little while to kind of get it together, and it really really helped me. And I'll always I will always uh, remember that. So, Bob, is something like speech therapy? Do you have to keep taking it, or is it like that? You've done that. That's over. Or do you need to keep working on it? Uh, 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 uh you gotta uh, you gotta keep working, Pete. And 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 I, you should never stop taking therapy. Uh, today, today was was uh, was kind of a scary day for me, Pete. Uh, 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 normally, I'm more fluent than this, but but I tell you, every day, every day is a new day. But I never, I never played the victim. Yeah, no, it's impressive. And so, when you were an NBA player, I mean, obviously, you had that speech impediment. You had the stutter. How did that affect you when you were a player? Did it affect you at all? Uh, no, it didn't. No, it didn't. As a matter of fact, it was a stimulus for me. I, I want to show everybody that even though even, even though I had a speech impediment, I could still play. But all those years I played, Pete, I was never interviewed on radio TV. Yeah, it's interesting. I was going to ask about that because so much of the game today is caught up in all the media part of it. Was it known by the the broadcast people that you had a stutter? Is that why you were never interviewed? Uh yeah, it was all because of the stuttering. I was I was uh, not able to be on TV or radio, and 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 actually all the guys, all the guys really really understood it, you know. And I I appreciated a lot of times because I was I was I was uh, really embarrassed about it. I just moved on, and 
and it made me wanted wanted to be a better player. So stuttering, was that something that was with you since you were a child? I mean, so did you have that all the way going through school and did it create issues for you growing up as well? Yeah, it's always been an issue in my life and stuff, but I didn't let it hold me back. I just kept on going. It made me try hard in school. Uh, It made me try hard on, on the sports field. Actually, Peter, believe it or not, I was a quarterback, man. I was a quarter, quarterback on the football team. Uh, uh, we won three state championships. And I had a coach who, who told me, he said, Butter, uh, he said, man, you uh, you notice something? If you sing, uh, you don't stutter. So they start calling me. Butter being the singing quarterback of Louisiana. <laughs> and and that, and that stayed with me. That was the only reason I didn't go to college, man, on a football scholarship because I, I, I was the best quarter, quarterback in Louisiana. Well, wait a minute. So were you were you 6'8", like 210 pounds in high school? Like were you, you must have been the tallest Absolutely. quarterback in the state. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm the same height, man. I could run. I could jump. Man. But I had the, I, I had the speech impediment. And and it, and it didn't hold me back. It didn't hold me back, Peter. It made me try harder. So I'm curious, you know, you, you talk a lot about that. It's super admirable. But when you were at the point where you're working at Nordstrom and then they, they offered you to get speech therapy, was it was it hard for you to do that? I mean, was it embarrassing? Or like, how did it feel at that time when you were trying to deal with all this and you had that opportunity to get speech therapy? Uh, no, it was something I've, I had always wanted to do. But I never took the time out to do it. I, I, I was, I was just busy, busy, busy trying to be the best player in the league. How did it work? Did you get was was it one on one speech therapy class, or were you part of a class, or what happened there when you started working uh, on this? Uh, it was a one on one, one on one therapy. And actually, Pete, once I stopped, I once once I stopped therapy, I stopped going to therapy, and it kind of came came back on me, but I kept going. So, Bob, you worked at Nordstrom for a while and did different jobs. Do you have any interesting stories or memories about your time with us? I remember, I remember, I remember one opportunity, man, I had, uh, uh, we had just opened up a store in, in uh, San Francisco, California. The last night, the last night uh, they had the, uh, the grand opening, everybody left. And, and I was left there to, uh, to wash dishes and bus tables for 4,000 people, Pete. And, 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 <laughs> That's and, a lot and of I dishes. Did it. I cleaned those tables up, man, and I stacked those dishes up, and I did the best job that I could do. And, uh, and uh, once I got back to Seattle, uh, John Nordstrom called me into his office. He said, Bob, he said, they left you there by yourself? I said, yeah, they sure did, John, but I don't mind. Uh, John said, Bob, I just had a talk with with the Chicago Bulls, and they want you. Uh, they want you to come back to to Chicago as a director of community affairs. I said, "Wow, man! Well, thank thank you, John, very very much." He said, "Bob, uh, one day, one day, you're going to get a chance uh, to come back to Seattle, and uh, you're going to get a chance to tell your story to all of the employees all across the country." I said, "John." I, I really, really appreciate that, man, and that's exactly what I'm, what I'm doing now. Uh, and I came back to Chicago in 1991, 
and I was going out to all, all of the schools there, there and I talked to all of the young kids and I tell them about, about my life and no one can believe that I could not get a job after being a successful basketball player. I'm still going out to the schools now and, and, and I'm telling the Nordstrom story to everybody. Uh, Pete, Pete and also, anytime I get up in front of a crowd, I, I don't stutter one lick. <laughs> That's good. Isn't isn't that amazing? It, it is I amazing. I don't stutter one bit. Uh, you're a good guy, Bob. No, I mean, you're, you're certainly remembered fondly around here, and I just, it's so impressive what you've been able to accomplish. So so tell me about, you know, the last, you know, several years working for the Chicago Bulls. You talk about going to schools and what have you. Has it been a, a satisfying part of your life? Have, have you enjoyed um, being out there in, in the community representing the Bulls? Yes, it has. Yes, it has. And uh, not only the Bulls, like I said, I've represented Nordstrom. Oh, I like that. Uh, That's good. A, a big part of my life is Nordstrom, the greatest company in the world. I love Nordstrom. And, and uh, I believe it or not, I have been approached by a, by a lot of a lot of Hollywood producers, and, and they told me that, that my story is one of the greatest stories of all time. It's not involving drugs, uh, being mad with anybody, stealing money and all that stuff. It's a story of overcoming, never playing the victim, always being a good person, always working hard, man. That's all I've ever did. Uh, if I ever get a chance uh, to do this movie, uh, it's going to be about Nordstrom, too. It's going to be how you help people, how you help Bob Love overcome his stuttering. Well, that's awesome. I'm super humbled by the way that you describe your experience at Nordstrom and the impact it had on your life. I, I Look, at I, I mean, you're the guy that did all the work and everything. So the credit goes to you, Bob. All right. So I can only imagine you got a chance to spend a fair amount of time with Michael Jordan. So what was that like? Did, were you able to develop a relationship with Michael Jordan when you were working in community <laughs> relations and he was on the team? Yeah, I talked to Michael all the time. Um, Michael is the guy that wrote the, uh, the, wrote the introduction to my book. Ah. The Bob Love Story. You know, and my movie, my movie is going to be based on that book. Uh, Michael, I... I always let him know that I'm the guy. I'm the guy that set the records at the Bulls, man, stuff. You know, and everything that he does, it it was following Bob Love's lead. (laughs) Yeah. So did Michael break a few of your records? I imagine he did. Uh, Yeah. Michael broke all my records, all except uh, the playoff record where I made 17 straight Free throws. That's a record that has stood the test of time, man. It's still, it's still there. You know, I mean, the fact that you can sit here and talk about, first of all, that Michael Jordan broke your records, but there's records you have that he did not break. I think this puts it all in context of what an amazing basketball player you were, Bob. That is amazing. All right, Pete. Thank you so much. Hey, look, you're, you're a good guy, Bob, and I, I really appreciate you taking some time to, to share your story. It's it's impressive um, what you've been able to achieve in your life. And um, I'm just so glad I, I've got a chance to meet you along the way and got to know you. And it's really nice what you have to say about Nordstrom. I, I, I do appreciate that. Pete, thank you so much. I, I, I love the family, John, Bruce, Blake, and, and of course, Pete, you. But I will never forget this, Pete. I have enjoyed you. I haven't seen you since 
You were like, what, you were like 18 years old, 20 years old, you're still young. <laughs> well, that makes my day. Yeah, that's, I appreciate you saying that. It's great to see you, Bob. All right, Pete, thank you so much. So to piggyback off my conversation with Bob, I thought we'd spend a little time diving deeper into a fairly large portion of our company that really has nothing to do with clothing, and that's the restaurant division. So if you're someone who can't resist a pit stop at Cafe Nordstrom in the middle of your shopping trip for a creamy Roma tomato basil soup, then you'll enjoy learning about the person responsible for that temptation, Vice President of Restaurant Operations, Vince Rossetti. So today, um, we're going to shine a little bit of a light on a division we have here in the store that you know, people really like and they certainly know about, but I don't know if they really get the full breadth and context of why we're in this business and what it does for us and our customers. And it's it's our restaurant division, and we've been serving food in one way or another for, God, as long as I've been around, a long, long time. But it's, uh, it's a part of the business that we run and operate ourselves and a real source of pride for what happens here. So we have our vice president responsible for the restaurant division, that's Vince Rossetti, here today on the Nordy Pod. Hi, Vince. Hey, Pete. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. All right. So I think we should get a little context. Why don't we start with just the size and scope of what this business is? Yeah. So if we were to take the top 500 restaurant national chain companies across the United States, we would sit right about the middle in the 250 mark. So um, you're talking about everything talking from every, Kentucky Fried Chicken to like Cheesecake, Cheesecake Factory, Factory or whatever. Chang's any, all, any chain restaurant. Correct. So right. we're, we're in the top half. Half. And, you know, with that, there's a lot of customers. Through the month of December, we were just under 17 million customers this year so far. You serve 17 million customers in restaurants alone this year? Yeah. Wow. 16 million, 880 something <laughs> thousand. Well, I'm, glad, I'm glad you got the exact <laughs> number. It's important here. What those details. Well, we pay attention to it because it, it helps us identify the customer's journey on something for me, right, that I refer to as a very emotional and personal response. Everyone has an opinion on food and they, they can sure articulate do. it. And I'm yes. sure you know that probably more than Absolutely. anybody. <laughs> and, and, you know, I sit in many, you know, many of the meetings and I've got 30 experts in the room no matter who I'm with, because everyone has that yeah, you connection know, it's, point. It's true. We talk about that a little bit, even with Nordstrom. I mean, everyone can relate to what it is we do because everyone wears clothes, right? So to your point, people have an opinion, just and they have a lot of opinions about what we sell, too, because if you start talking about things like style or fashion, that's pretty subjective Yeah, yeah, and, and that's well. where, you know, if I ask somebody, hey, tell me about fashion, they might stumble on it for a moment. If I just say the word meatloaf, instantly <laughs> they have an opinion, what it looks like, smells like, tastes like, whether they like it or whether they don't. Yeah, so, you know, my memory of the restaurant deal goes back to the 70s, which is when we started yeah. that idea, and... The way it was always explained to me was we should have some type of food offering in our stores because the thing that causes customers to leave more than any one thing is I'm hungry, I need to get something to eat, and I'll come back later. Well, the fact is once they leave the store, they don't often come back. So what could we do to get people to stay? And so the initial concept was we had a third party that ran the restaurants. It was 
I remember downtown Seattle was called Ryan Sandwich mm-hmm. Express. That's right. And it was good and everything. And here's a little known fact for you guys. You might not know this, but the first job I ever did in a store when I was like 12 years old, my dad used to bring me down in the summers, is he brought me to the the Ryan Sandwich Express here in downtown Seattle, and they had me peel potatoes for the chowder. I only did it one day. I must not have been very good at it. I don't think I got invited back, but that was my first experience. I remember, particularly as a 12-year-old, going, man, that's a long day, peeling potatoes for, I don't know, two bucks an hour or whatever it was I was making. So I have a real appreciation, first of all, where this all came from, why we do it, and how hard it is. Those are not easy jobs. Well, no, no. And I think back to, you know, 40 years ago and Ryan Sandwich Express. And, you know, I haven't been around all 40 of those. (laughs) You're a young man, Vince. Yeah, I'm I'm quickly approaching, uh, next month will be 32 years. So I've been a part of... You've been in Norris for 32 years? Yeah. Yeah, so I started with Oak Brook. So Oak Brook opened in... 91. 91. In Chicago. In Chicago, yeah. Okay, so let, let's kind of shift gears a little bit to you. So had you done restaurant work? What brought you to Nordstrom you know, to work for us in the cafe at that's, Oak Brook? That's a great one. I come from... I have a large family, so I have five brothers and a, a sister. Food was always a part of my life. Dinner for my mom was not cooking a chicken. It was cooking three chickens. Really? I always knew food was part of my journey. I was fortunate that way. So I went to culinary school, trained as a chef, finished that. And I was in Chicago working different restaurants. And it was literally a Sunday morning. I was reading the Chicago Tribune and I came across this ad for Nordstrom. And, and I might have made a sarcastic comment and said, who the hell is this? And my wife stopped me and said, oh, Nordstrom, let me tell you about them. So I went and checked out Oak Brook, and it was about two weeks before the Oak Brook store was ready to open. So what, what job did you apply for? I applied for a sous chef position, so the assistant chef. And, yeah. Well, two weeks before the store was opening, most of the jobs were all filled. Didn't get the job. But I got called back for a second interview for a line cook. Yeah, I didn't get that job either. And then I got a third call, and I got offered a $6-an-hour prep dishwasher position. Wow, and those that is a humble start. Well, Modest. You know, what, what hooked me is I got to hear a few of the leaders at the time speak. Mm-hmm. There was just something intriguing about this Pacific Northwest company that you know was very customer-centric and focused. Now, there was a lot of learnings. 32 years ago, we weren't the scratch kitchen we are today. We were more um, heat and serve. But that was our evolution, where today, plus 90% of what we do, we manufacture in-house. Okay, well, since there are so many food choices, options, opinions, talk a little bit about the curation of your menu. So when it comes to menu, it's, you know, watching and paying attention to food trends are a big part of it and making sure that we're current with the times. You know, a good emphasis on that would be uh, the shift into vegetarian, vegan. So do we have vegan options at every Well, the fact that we're restaurant? a scratch house, we can manufacture anything. So our menu becomes somewhat of a list of choices. So if somebody sees, oh, they have eggplant, they have X, we can manufacture So does that happen, happen often? Someone say, hey, look, I'm vegan. Always. I, can you do this? Every day, multiple times a day. Do the chefs have latitude to add their own? I mean, because we have a menu that's largely 
similar. So, you, yeah. you know, it's not like you go to a store and go, I have no idea what they serve in this restaurant. There's there's some foundational elements. But do they have latitude to have they their have own latitude. things going they, on, too? They, they all of a sudden come across something that, you know, they want to produce. There, there's a protocol for them to follow, but they'll put a recipe together and they'll work with their regional chef and make sure it fits. Right. Does it fit who we are, who we want to be and in the store? And then we'll run it as a feature or it may get considered for a future menu item as well. Have you guys ever been super excited about something you put on the menu and have just an absolute flop? It did not work. Well, that happens every year. Because, <laughs> you don't you know, bat a thousand? Just, no, <laughs> I, I wish we did. But, you know, anytime we're making a change and we put something on the menu, you know, we're doing it with the intent that, hey, this is going to be the next big thing. To give you an example, as simple as a pork chop. Right. We have over the years tried many times in our full service restaurants to do it. And the teams will come up with something that is just this is it. This is the one. This one's going to sell. And our customers don't respond. They don't like the pork chop. No. You run it as a special. It'll move all day long for the entire time. Make it an everyday menu item and it loses its luster. So that happens all the time. Our customers, they vote and they they vote every day. They let you know. That's for sure. But much like clothes the real moment of truth is in clothes is do i look good in this do i feel good in this and with food is does it taste good right so talk about how that more kind of subjective part of the business informs your strategy what we do is we take the team of the regional chefs in february is when we start the cycle annually of refreshing our menus that process goes through with the regional chefs putting together a dish And then we, as a leadership team, myself, the corporate chef, and our national director, will literally taste every dish. How come you don't invite us down to taste some food? That sounds pretty good. (laughs) It is fun for the first 10 items. (laughs) It gets overwhelming. By item 20, um, there's uncle. Yeah, and and the team knows that anything they're really geeked up about and want to get through to the next level, they better show it in item one through five because there is a point that your palate gets saturated. But every one of those dishes, and by the time it makes it to me, it's already pretty far down the vetted process, but we're literally tasting every dish and then talk to guests while we're in the store. Our customers tell us when we're on our game. Yeah, so that's my next question. What is the number one compliment you think we get from customers? I think the number one thing we hear is the surprise and delight of, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. Like they weren't expecting much. It's much better than they they thought it'd be. You know, they're thinking maybe the old, you know, call it Woolworth Walgreens diner experience where it's just blood sugar maintenance. And maybe we were there at one point. Um, We're now today, it's this is unbelievable or the feedback I'll get and the connection. And this is part of, we talk about why we exist, the emotional connection with the customer. So we talk about the good stuff. What's the number one complaint you get? I think would, would sometimes be speed. We want it faster. Yes, they and, do. And, but if we want to go back to maybe one of the single biggest complaints might be when we eliminated 25 cent coffee. That was a vocal <laughs> group. That was the best deal in the world. 25 cent coffee. How long? That was a long time ago. Yeah, it was a while. Yeah. All right. So Vince, now I'm going to give you the opportunity to say, you know, in your long, illustrious career, when you're at the end of your time here and you have to write the Vince Rossetti book of my career, what story is going to be in that book? You know, there's I received a call from a customer and they were not happy. They were from the Oak Brook store. And we'd close the pub. Okay. And they were giving me an airful about 
closing it. And, and this is a store you're obviously very familiar with. Very you used familiar. to work there, so you know exactly why uh, we closed the pub. And we were having a conversation, and it got not heated, but feisty. And finally, I, I said, well, in all honesty, you're part of the problem and why it closed. That probably didn't go over well. And but keep what, going. Do you, what do you mean? <laughs> and I said, it closed four years ago and you just noticed. <laughs> and I was able to take them through a journey of kind of moments in time until they got to the point that they were agreeing that they were I was right that they didn't notice but they had a shopping experience that previous weekend with their spouse and they wanted to go to the pub while his wife shopped and he couldn't because it didn't exist yeah that, he was he was pretty unhappy that's kind of a familiar refrain because yeah people get emotionally attached to whatever's going on that they might like and this has happened to us before with things we sell in the store and if we stop caring or selling because yeah. to your point trying to carry things that are relevant current popular not everything stays that way so right. when we move away from a certain product yeah i've had customers let me have it about that and i said well not enough people bought it i mean you know and then, but they that that rational argument doesn't tend to go over well this no. is your point these are personal <laughs> and emotional things yeah. for people and then to give you one maybe on a more positive spin probably about five years ago you know i go in our restaurants not just when i'm working so it was a saturday night i was in one of our stores and w went to have dinner my wife, my two sons, we were sitting, we were eating, and I may not be working, but I'm still watching, listening, oh, yeah, paying attention. Oh, yeah, I know how that goes. And the table, the booth directly adjacent to us, I'm watching, and I know something hasn't gone right. You could just tell the server language, the body language of the customer, and it's taking an eternity. And when that happens, and I'm in there, it's you're bleeding, right? I finally... I got out of the booth and I walked up to the table and I should have, but I didn't introduce myself. I, I just asked, I said, what did you guys order? And he gentleman told me what him and his wife and their son ordered. I said, great. And I went back and I made the food. You made it. Made it. What was it a special request or what? No, no, we just, we were having an off night. Yeah. And when I got up, I didn't know this at the time, they were kind of surprised that some dude just got up and then walked into the kitchen. Yeah, that would be surprising. So he got up and he asked my wife, what's he doing? And then she explained it. And I came back to the table, delivered the food, and he was extremely complimentary and, and grateful to the fact that, you know, it just, I couldn't stand to see that experience happening and fixed it. And that customer and I, we've talked for many years since, and, oh, wow. you know, ironically, they're in the food business, they're on the distributor side, but you know, I think about how many times he's told that story. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's one of those, you, you never ask for permission to do the right thing. Just do it. And that's how I felt in that moment. I love that. All right. Hey, look at Vince, you're really nice to share some wisdom with us about how the whole restaurant division works. It is, I think, somewhat to your point, a bit of an unsung or a hidden, hidden gem for us in a lot of ways. But it is noticeable from where I sit, the amount of people that have such an affinity for what we do there and an emotional connection that has to do with both the food and the people. So I just want to say great job. We're happy to have this division in our company. Well, thanks, Pete. It was fun uh, chatting about the division and what we do. Well, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this journey and we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, 
a share and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to Nordstrom.com slash Nordy Podcast, where you can listen to episodes, see upcoming guests, and learn about how to get involved. We really want to hear about your experiences with Nordstrom. So if you have a story about how you receive great service or even bad service, send us an email to NordyPodcast at Nordstrom.com. You can also give us a call and leave a voicemail, and you just might hear your voice on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy. Drop us a line and be part of the Nordy Pod. And make sure to tune in next time when I sit down with actor, author, comedian, game show host, and dad, basically the busiest guy in Hollywood, Joel McHale. I, I, I still have the feeling of an, like when you're an actor who doesn't make any money and is out of work, you know, it's like, what am I going to do next? Even when I began making like Pete Nordstrom money, I was like, this is probably my last job, which is uh, not a healthy way to live. There have been a few times when I was like, oh, you're doing okay. I'll never, I was at a party where frickin' Bill Clinton was there and Elvis Costello walked up and said, my wife's a fan. <laughs> wow. And I was like, uh, I don't know how ever this ever happened. Joel and I both happened to grow up on Mercer Island here in the Seattle area. And though we had never met until now, I could certainly relate to a lot of his experiences growing up. Now, obviously, I didn't take the path to TV and film, but it was pretty enjoyable chatting with Joel about how he carved out a successful and lasting career in Hollywood. So join us next time on The Nordy Pod. Nordy Pod.